0: Welcome to our podcast today. This is Pursuing Justice, and I'm Harriet Hendel. Our guest is Christine Bunch. She's with us again to share her deeply tragic story of having been accused of arson and felony murder way back in 1995. She spent 16 years in prison for a crime she did not commit. Today, we are going to shed a light on women exonerees and some of their stories, but before we do that, um, we were talking last time about Christine's case, and I very much want her to finish telling us how it it happened that her case was overturned. So, welcome back, Christine. Thank
1: you. I'm glad to be here.
0: All right. So, we we talked about um, your wrongful conviction and that the center for wrongful conviction in chicago stepped in to help you after you uh tried to reach out for help in, in various uh, places um and so what you you also finished last time by talking about the myths of fire science uh, that's a an interesting term myths uh they certainly shouldn't be myths they should be facts so, what, what would you say um, turned your verdict around?
1: Well, um, the two main things that turned my verdict around were the, the original ATF report. So, my attorneys subpoenaed that file from the ATF, and when they received the file, they got the original report that stated no accelerant had been found in my son's bedroom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And out of the 10 samples they took, they found one faint trace of kerosene that wasn't in the carpet or the carpet padding. It was actually in the wood underneath it. And the previous owner had already testified that he had had a kerosene heater in there when he remodeled it. Oh my. Wow. So... That was, you know, of course a Brady violation. That mm. was exculpatory evidence that was hidden. Was not turned over. over. Right. 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 And then the second thing was a new fire science. One of the fire investigators that came in is a fire toxicology expert. Mm. And Jamie McAllister determined cause and origin of fire based off of Tony's autopsy report. So, he had actually gotten to an 80% carboxyhemoglobin, which means that he was breathing in carbon monoxide. He was dead and gone before the fire even broke out. Wow. And in her studies, arsons burned too hot too fast to give off that level of carbon monoxide. But an electrical fire in a wall or the ceiling would smolder for a very long time, and that carbon monoxide would just build up and build up.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So she went on to say that there were remnants of electrical fire within the trailer that they hadn't looked at. There was bubbled wire. There was... um, A ceiling tile that was black on the top and white on the bottom where it had fallen down. And the breaker box actually had four breakers that had been popped. So, in her estimation, it was an electrical fire, and the fire experts didn't go in and look for that.
0: Well, they didn't go in and look for it because apparently they had their person.
1: Exactly. Their mind was made up. The third thing that was really great, my um, attorneys blew up a photo and showed that there was nothing in the doorway. The chair actually sat a foot away from the doorway, and you could see the protected base on the floor where the chair had sat. And my prosecutor said, I object, where did you get that photo? And they took it off the projector, and he said, this is actually one of your trial photos. He said, we just blew it up.
0: Incredible, just um, so so much that should have come out in your trial, and did not. Yes, did not. Would you characterize um, some of that as um, uh, you know misconduct by uh, prosecutors and and lawyers in in terms of not. Maybe, uh, well, only, not only handing over the evidence, but, I don't know, not not doing the kind of job they should have done? Well, um,
1: honestly, um, my prosecutor claimed that he had never seen the original ATF report,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I didn't disbelieve him. I think that he was surprised by it just like we were. But the people that I do blame and I feel like should have been upfront and honest are the experts, the people we put our trust in. Right, right. The chemists from the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms our fire marshals, our arson investigators. Mm-hmm. They need to be properly trained and they need to disclose all evidence. Right.
0: Yeah. The training is, is critical. And when, when would you say, um, when we talked before about myths, um, some of the new fire science evidence uh, came out? Was that more after your trial? Or was it available during your trial?
1: So, some of it was available during my trial. But in smaller towns, they weren't doing the arson and fire training. To keep up with the bigger cities, yeah so the the whole myths they were still going on, hey, you know if you walk in and you see a, a pattern going from the doorway, that means there's a poor pattern there in truth, if somebody's lived in a house for five years and they walk in the front door every day for the same amount of time after the fire burns, there's gonna be a path there because you wore it down, yeah. It's just not an indicator of arson unless you go in and test it and you find evidence there of an accelerant.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, how long from when the Center for Wrongful Conviction stepped in and between then and your actual release from prison? How long did it take?
1: They stepped in in 2006. And I wasn't released until August twenty second of twenty
0: twelve. Wow. Yeah, it, it's just it's so slow in terms of uh, you know all the new evidence. And I, I was reading um, some articles about you and um, interesting comment by Judge Westhafer, Is that how he he says his name? And he he stated new experts do not create new evidence that sentence really jumped out at me um i i guess you know there's that unwillingness to change your mind from where you were you know the minds of a lot of those people were made up and don't confuse me with the facts is that your your uh, impression absolutely
1: i don't i think it's hard for anybody to say hey We've made a mistake,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, instead of getting angry about it, I look at it like one of my lawyers told me. She said, "You know, these are these are good people who have served the law and justice all of their life." Mm-hmm. And she said, "Maybe, maybe it's just too hard for them to accept that they made a mistake and you lost 16 years of your life."
0: Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be. My, my feeling is it shouldn't be so difficult to admit that, you know, we're, we were wrong about something when, when someone's life, as in your case, hangs in the balance. And, and we know that people have been in prison for decades, um, and that it was someone's fault, and often it's prosecutorial misconduct. And often it's a Brady violation where the evidence is not turned over. It's there, but it isn't shared. And somebody pays a very, very heavy price. So, in uh, in 2012, you were freed from prison. And we're going to talk about what you've done since then. But I know you wanted to address the issue of women exonerees. So... What did you want to tell us about uh, that topic?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's, it's so important that people realize that there, there aren't so few on the registry because it doesn't happen to women. It does happen to women. The, the issue is it's a case like mine where no crime actually took place, and you need experts to go in there and prove that. You know, with DNA, it's a lot simpler. You go in and you yeah. take a DNA test, and you're done. That's you're exonerated. Right. You're out. But if a case is fire or shaken baby or mm-hmm. some kind of mm-hmm. hidden medical illness that you didn't know was even there, we have women who are going to prison for it, and the women are—they're just like me. They're—they're they're broken. They're shattered, their life has been ripped apart, and I think they're incredibly vulnerable in that moment. And we aren't talking about better ways to protect them, to make sure that this doesn't happen. Because it's, it's so confusing when everything's happening and they're telling you, you said something. And if you're a person like me, who's never been in trouble by the law, you think these are the good guys. And so when they tell you something you say oh yes i i believe that so we need to really focus on ways that we can help women on ways that we can get more experts involved helping the innocence project to bring more of these women home because i feel like most of them were were tricked at that at that soul-shattering moment
0: yeah um I often talk about the Innocence Project of Florida, where I was on the board for six years, and for all the years since that was formed, um, back I believe in in 2006, and now we're at 2021, um, we had never exonerated a woman in all those years, and last year, two women were exonerated by the Innocence Project of Florida. Um, Are you somewhat familiar with um, those two women? Uh, Can you say anything about their cases? I am familiar with Amanda Brumfield's case. Okay.
1: And um, I know that she was accused of of killing a child. And... um, Most of what I, I know about her isn't from trial transcripts. I was speaking at Northwestern University and talking about women's wrongful convictions and how we needed to be, you know, more focused on that, raise the attention level because it's happening. And Amanda's aunt had traveled to hear me speak and tell me that um, I had given her hope, mm. and she was never going to stop fighting for Amanda.
0: When, when did you do that uh, talk at uh, Northwestern?
1: Ooh, that was in 2014.
0: Oh, my goodness. So six more years went by. Uh, I know Amanda spent nine years total in, in prison. Wow. And another woman is Stephanie Spurgeon, um, also a, a case of a... Of a Death of a child, she spent eight years, in, and as I said, both of them uh, exonerated last year. Are there other, are there other key factors in um, women accused of crimes they did not commit that you feel need to be addressed?
1: Well, I mean, definitely. It's, it's very easy when you're looking at women to create a story about them. And it's not necessarily their story. You're judging them on looks or how they act. And how you believe a woman should act or she should present herself. So, when a man goes in for trial, we're, we're saying, does he have a clean shirt on? Is he wearing a suit? Is he mm-hmm. freshly shaved? Nice haircut. A woman goes in. You know, you're talking about, is she... Is she crying too much? You know, is she putting on an act? Is she not crying enough? Is she cold? Is she, you know, looking like, I don't know, a diva? Is she looking like a beauty queen? Is she looking like a trophy wife? Is she looking like a slut? You know, everything comes into play when you're talking about women. They're looking at their clothes. They're looking at their hair. They're looking at their makeup. And they're being judged for that instead of who that person truly is.
0: So is it, what you're saying, This it's very interesting to hear what you're saying, is that maybe there are two different yardsticks um, or two different sets of rules where... Uh, women and men are concerned as they sit there while the trial is going on. Um, different, uh, different perspective. Very, very interesting. What, what else could be done? As you say, you feel that it's important to raise awareness, but what, what else can the average person uh, do in, in, in situations like this?
1: Well, if you're um, trying to advocate for a loved one who is in prison and shouldn't be, you need to be, you know, writing to the Innocence Project. You need to be talking to lawyers, asking them to take a pro bono. You need to, you know, put it on social media, get other people involved,
0: mm-hmm.
1: really um, reach out and. Make it so there is not just your voice, but a hundred voices raised for that person. And I feel like one person shouting, somebody else is going to listen and they're going to start shouting with you. And before you know it, you have a legion. So I think that's definitely something that everybody can do. It only takes a little bit of time. Um, You know, it's hard to go out and be an investigator on your own. Sure. Sure. You need experts to do that, but I feel like if you continue to put it out there, eventually somebody is going to see it, and it's going to pique their interest, and you'll have some assistance. Mm. Um, The other thing that we could really talk about is, you know, if there was some kind of legislation that when it's the death of a child or a loved one, that female is automatically given representation no one speaks to her without representation and i think that would just safeguard her rights maybe even her freedom because in that moment she's not thinking i need to ask for a lawyer she's thinking i'm innocent Mm -hmm. and i need to answer whatever they ask yeah
0: that's it and that's dangerous because without representation those statements uh can turn around and bite you back right yes yeah Yeah. um do you know other women since this is uh, an area um, that is familiar to you um, i i heard you speak uh, six years ago in Orlando, Florida, at a uh, Worldwide Innocence Network convention, and you were on a panel with several women, several other women, who also had been um, imprisoned, accused of a crime they had not committed. Are there other women's cases um, that you know about that um you might want to mention uh, and maybe speak in in more general terms about them, up to you?
1: Um, I mean, there there are so many and the sad part is, I mean, it hurts me to tell the story and it takes a a big piece of my emotional well-being in order to share and get it out there. Mm -hmm. But I know that there are some incredible women that have been through the same thing that I have been through. And by the time they got exonerated, they're broken. They can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. They don't want to share their story. They just want to disappear because the shame, the humiliation... For some of them, the beatings they received were so traumatic that they can't get past it. So every time I think, you know what, I absolutely can't talk again. I can't do another interview. I can't sit on another panel. I can't say the story again. I think about my sisters and the ones that can't talk that can't open their mouth to say, hey, this is wrong, this happened to me, it's happened to so many others. So, I keep talking about it, because I don't want anybody to forget them.
0: Right. And if we don't talk about the whole issue of wrongful conviction, whether it's men or women, then people don't know that this is going on in our our country, and not just us, but that's the incredible part of the Innocence Network, that there are several countries that are part of that um, network, so it's worldwide, it isn't just here, so we we certainly do need to talk about it, but I I think that it's more familiar that men, as I look down the list, I was looking at the more recent exonerations um, just the other day, and it's just person after person after person, and it's practically all men, and then you come across the name of a woman, and and that's it. But you might find 30 names, and then there's just one woman there. So I I think it doesn't get enough press. It really does not, and and we, we need for that to happen and I'm so grateful that you are willing to talk even though it is a very, very difficult subject for you. Um, It's hard to listen. Not only is it hard for you to speak, but it's hard to hear it. It's very, very hard to hear it. So uh, I I certainly do appreciate that. Um, Is there um, kind of a a small network of women, uh, you know, who are have experienced what you have that, you know, you connect with at all?
1: Absolutely. Um, Those of us that, you know, have lost a child, that's um, a different kind of bond. So, um, you know, I I know that I can always shoot out an email or a text and set up a phone call with one of them. I mean, they're... um, They're closer to me in some ways than my own family because they're the only ones that can really understand and relate to me. Sure. But I feel like the women have formed a special group and we try to be there and encourage each other. Oh, that's that's great.
0: Are these women all over the United States in various places? Yes. One's
1: even in Canada.
0: Oh, my. Wow. (laughs) That's, that's amazing. Well, that is wonderful that there's, um, you know, a sense of support, a sense of connection, um, and that that's that really, uh, there is no substitute for that. All right, we are almost out of time, and I, I know that you are going to come back and talk to us again. And our next segment, and I encourage our listeners to uh, tune in, um, will be about Christine's nonprofit organization, Justice for Just Us. And I'm very eager to have her talk about that. So uh, please stay with us. Thank you again, Christine, for spending time with us today. And I hope our listeners join us next time to hear more of what Christine has done with the experience that she's had, something very, very positive. So thanks again for listening to Pursuing Justice.